And welcome to this episode of Twelve O Two, the Human Factors Podcast, with me, your host Barry Kirby. Before we get into the main episode, as usual, I've got a couple of parish notices uh, that I wanted to mention. Uh, firstly, thank you to everybody who's given me feedback on the evolution of the way that this podcast is being delivered. I recognise that with everything that I do, not everything goes as smoothly and effectively as I would like, but everyone puts up with my varying levels of incompetence. Uh, you put up with it all with good humour. Having said that, I'd really encourage anyone to get in touch with any suggestions, comments and questions. I'm really keen to learn from others about the sort of things that you do and the sort of, the sort of skills that you think I should be including in this. Obviously, the latest thing around this is, is video editing and, and that type of thing, and that is definitely something that we're pushing forward with. Secondly, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, sorry, I've had a couple of questions on how you could show some support for the podcast, which is a really nice thing to hear. In the grand scheme of things, this is, for me, a rather self-indulgent hobby um, and certainly not, a, not an income stream in any way. But if you did want to show that you're a podcast supporter, then you could have a look at our merch store, which is on our website at 1202podcast.com. That currently has a 1202 hoodie, wonderfully modelled mo- uh, by Leo, my son. But if you think there's other items that you would like to purchase, then, again, I'd love to hear your suggestions. We're currently thinking of things like mugs, pens and keyrings. But is there other things that you might think would be more appropriate? And if, if you would like to buy them sort of things, it'd be really useful for, for us to, to let me know, because then I can get on and make them. If nobody wants them, then I, I won't, and I'll just create my own little mug, and it'll sit there on my desk, and I'll be very proud of it. Anyway, on to today's episode. Towards the end of last year, we had an episode that uh, looked behind the scenes of EHF 2022 with David Golightly and Nora Balfe. I'm really pleased to say that the experience didn't scare either of them off and both have agreed to come back and tell us more about what they're doing in their day job. That is when they're not organising conferences. So I'm really delighted to welcome David Go, uh, David Go Lightly back to the podcast. Welcome, David. And thank you very much for coming back and joining us again. Hi, Barry. So before we get into the main topic where we're going to explore a bit more about um, the work you do with, within the rail industry... Um, can we just find out a bit more about you? Because last time when you were on the podcast, we didn't really um, get under the cover of really who you were. We were very much focused on what we were going to deliver in EHF 2022. So could you give us a bit of an insight into what your current role is and kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure. Um, so I'm a lecturer. A lecturer in uh, it's human systems integration is my title. And I guess there's maybe a good pub conversation to be had about what that title actually means. Can you actually <laughs> integrate a human within the system? Surely they're already part of the system. Um, but nonetheless, that's my job title I've got. So human systems integration, and that's within the School of Engineering here at Newcastle University. So I teach human factors elements, primarily in the mechanical engineering course. So I'll give students an overview of basics of ergonomics, physical ergonomics, cognitive ergonomics, more organisational factors. And then I also do some kind of targeted lectures in some of the more specific courses, say we do a course on transportation, intelligent transportation system, and I give them a, a human factors lecture. That's the teaching side. And then, like most academics, you know, do, do a lot of research around that, of which I would say probably about these days, about 70% of it is is rail-related, and another 30% is in other aspects of mobility. But historically, I've worked in 
research in in areas like manufacturing as well or or smartphone applications hci those kind of topics i'd say your background and i'd really recommend anybody goes and um, sort of has a browse at your linkedin profile or your um your basically your academic history here because you're one of these people who've done um pretty much everything in terms of the breadth of work that you've been involved in i think i, I do find your, your entire background fascinating and just that level of experience that you've managed to pull together the the students that you're engaging with must um feel i guess kind of privileged to be able to to, to be able to get some of that experience off you well i mean it's great to be able to communicate some of that because i you know i i, I did work in in industry, the commercial sector for a number of years. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like a lot of human factors people who come up more from the psychology track. I came up through, did an undergraduate in psychology. Um, I then did a PhD, which was human-computer interaction. It was very, and certainly in the 90s, that was kind of a, mm. I say, almost like a traditional psychology subject, but it was, it was, it was kind of frustrating. It was all about noodling about with, with screens and mouse pointers and things like that. And I was like, well, surely there's something more about what people are actually trying to achieve here rather than just, you know, how quickly they can move a mouse around. And, yeah, so I, I worked in the commercial sector, it, it, telecoms, for two or three years when the 3G boom was just starting, mm-hmm. and financial services doing HCI. And that, you know, there's a lot of things about understanding how understanding what a project manager is, understanding what a business analyst is, how you can integrate usability, HCI, human factors within those kind of functions, how you work with people like marketing, software development, stuff like that. So that was all great insight. But um, I, I knew the people at University of Nottingham, the human factors group, particularly Sarah Sharples, we're, we're good friends, go back a long way and there was an opportunity to do some work in there that was again more domain focused. I, I like doing some of the communist consumer stuff, mm-hmm. but what always interested me was expertise and experts. Right. Back to my undergraduate stuff, you know, how do experts see the world, how they interpret the world? And so there was an opportunity to do some work around that, looking at, in this case, experts in the rail sector. And dare I say it, I always like to train. So <laughs> the opportunity to put those two things together was, it was kind of a, Ideal oh. job, really. So, yeah, worked in human factors, the, the the research group at Nottingham, HFRG, for, I think it was 11 or 12 years, then came up here to Newcastle about four years ago. That's really cool. But rewind it right to the back. You said you did your, your, your undergraduate. What? Why human factors in the first place? Why 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 this field at all? What, what, what was your driver? What was the inspiration? Again, I think it was... It was, it, I've always been interested in that expertise. Going back to my undergraduate, when I, I second year of undergraduate, I did a cognitive psychology course. And the bit that really kind of lit a fire under me was that kind of way that experts see the world differently, the way they structure the world differently, the way they see sort of problems differently, the way that we would approach things at a surface level. They see a deep structure even now, when I watch match of the day, I'm, I'm I'm less bothered about the football. I like the punditry in the middle because it's all about how they kind of you know they talk about the game in a way that oh I didn't, I didn't see that. So I, I think that's that's all fascinating. And then I did a couple of projects not long after my PhD, working with Rolls Royce, the aerospace jet engines. Again, thinking about how they were 
using knowledge at that stage it was kind of knowledge management knowledge engineering within their development processes so that that became a big part of it and then it was fusing that this hci element to that kind of understanding knowledge and expertise putting those two together it just seemed to be that human factor was was a, a natural port of call for me um but it 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 I thought I had to bide my time a bit till I, I found the right opportunity, which luckily came through. So when in university. So when you um, did your first, did your undergraduate degree, was that psychology itself, or yeah. was that yeah? So, yeah. so why why psychology in the first place? Why why not something like I don't know, but anything else? What what was why, what what was the the driver behind psychology? That's a really good question. I guess I'd go back. I'd always been interested in how how I thought about things. Okay. Again, I, I really traditionally how, how people solve problems. I love that bit when you're playing a game or a puzzle, doing a puzzle, where you suddenly think, uh, I, "This game isn't about this. It's about something else." I'm do- not do you know that that mm. point where. You probably didn't fritter hours of your life away playing Candy Crush, but but for a while I did. I might have done. And is that a point where you kind of like, oh no, that I haven't got this. I see this problem in a different kind of way. I'm not. It's not just about crushing candies. It's about grouping things in certain ways and yeah. structuring it. And again, I, I think that was always interesting. The way things like navigation and stuff like that always interested me. So I was always interested in kind of. How do we solve problems? How do we interpret the world? How do we make sense of ourselves in the world? Um, and so I had the opportunity to do, I was doing op- psychology and computing science as a joint up in, it was up in Aberdeen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, uh, the, the computer science baffled me. It still kind of does, which I guess is kind of <laughs> why I work a bit in HCI. But as, as people always say, to me, you know, I, I, I can't help fix a problem with a computer, but it can help you understand why you can't fix it. Yes. So, uh, way, so the psychology is what really kind of, you know, again, really interested me. We did a lot of stuff on artificial intelligence then and about rules and expert systems. Mm. So again, that's kind of really what got me started on the rest of my career, I think. Yeah, it's really cool because I, I guess I had that, that sort of enlightening moment when, because we did a lot of advanced programming through, through our degree, but it was the when I finally got to a, um, a user interface module and and then I realized that whenever I build stuff, I always build the interface first because if I can understand yeah. how to use it, then you know, putting the stuff behind it is, well, wasn't easy for me, but you know, I, I could then understand what I was doing. I couldn't do anything until I got the interface sorted out. I yeah. guess that should have been an early, I should have maybe cottoned onto my career before I um, actually did. Um, so we're going to go go and then have a bit of a discussion um, around, particularly around your the work in the rail industry. But before we do that, we're just going to go and take a, a really quick break. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. And welcome back. Uh, today we're talking to David Golightly, particularly focusing on his work in the in the rail sector. But as we've just been talking about, that's not the uh, 
his only fruit. And this is my kind of ploy, I guess, that hopefully we'll get him back on again at some other point to uh, to tell us about some of the other stuff we, he gets on with as well. But, David, so as you've already alluded, alluded to, you've done a, a broad variety of work in the um, in the rail sector. Can you give us, I guess, um, a, potted history, a potted overview, if you will, of the sort of topic areas that you, that you've engaged with or that you're interested in? Yeah, for sure. Uh, i say I, I was working at HFRG, University of Nottingham, and, and they've got a long, oh, I, I can't avoid the, the pun, can I? A long track record <laughs> in, uh, in the rail sector. Um, Professor John Wilson, very heavily involved in the kind of in real growth as a as a research academic topic, and indeed as as a practical topic of human factors and ergonomics in rail, it had been around for for a long time. But there was a real kind of push at the early two thousands, mm. and John played a major role in that. And he was part of the group, obviously, he led the group at HFRG. Topics that I've dealt with. So, you know, so I first got involved in what we would call signalling. So that is the the, the operational staff who were in a control room and 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 set the signals used to be pulling levers, used to be pull, pushing buttons. Now it's a kind of VDU-based task, quite often with a high degree of automation sometimes. So they're controlling the signals, setting the routes. And again, that's kind of really interesting task. It's a kind of very visual task. But you see that they have to control a number of elements, not just about moving the trains. They're basically the eyes and ears of the network. So people who are wanting to go out on track, controlling level crossings sometimes, even interacting with with people on station, stuff like that, they they kind of see what's going on. Again, TASA is involving a lot of automation increasingly, so it's kind of now classic or, or, or key areas for human factors, you know, the human automation relationship. So working that. What work in the maintenance side of things, and some of that has been about how track workers go out on track and how they organise themselves and protection around that, and particularly did a lot of work with Brendan Ryan at Nottingham, who's leading a whole project in that area. But increasingly it's become also about sort of safety of construction, um, safety leadership, safety culture, and there was somebody called Shelley Styles, Shelley Styles, who's a, a behavioral safety consultant. She works in that actively and I, I work with her and how she's doing her analysis and, and behavioral change programs and then passenger experience. So it's this idea of what the passenger deals with, um, you know, and, and that's kind of a, a holistic thing, not just what's on the train, but also the information that we we use to get ourselves to the station to work out what trains we're going to get, planning, ticketing, all that kind of stuff. It's one of those things that, again, going back to expertise versus versus novices, if you like. Um, people who are commuters are really familiar with that task, but people who are very unfamiliar or unsure about travelling on trains it can be it can be quite a daunting experience. So how do we make this something that's tuned to the computer commuter experience but also useful for for these kind of tourists or less frequent or less confident travellers? And then I'll give a final shout out. Very last year I've got very much involved in freight. Mm-hmm. So um a, a really fascinating area. Really fascinating area. Somewhat I think a little overlooked in in human factors so far. But, you know, it's got a key role in our economy, key role in decarbonisation. Estimates last year in UK, Great Britain, you know, 
rail freight was moved to the equivalent, that would have been 70 million HGVs. Wow. So we can only wish to expand that, and particularly as we electrify more of the rail work, we, we end up with a very low carbon form of transportation for moving goods, whether it be you know, bulk goods and aggregates or more kind of intermodal sort of containerized goods as well, moving them around the country around the country. So that's become part of my work as well. So before we get into some of the other bits, let's stick with the uh, with the freight bit just for a second then. Um how what sort of things are you getting involved with there? Because uh, I believe and do correct me if I'm wrong, but actually the there is probably a lot more freight being transported than we recognise because you don't see it really on a you know, except for the old freight train going through going through a station when you stood there, but yeah. um, presumably it's quite highly used, is it? So yeah, and and that's a really good point, Barry. And one thing is is that freight, as um, in in recent history, as as it, it, it kind of ultimately flourished during COVID. Right. Okay. The passenger service was thin. Mm. We still need to get stuff moved around the country. So it was a lot easier to get freight trains shifted. I mean, if you look at the big picture, obviously we're, we're our rail service, hey, it, 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 a lot of it started not far away from where I am here mm. in Newcastle. It was about shifting freight. Yeah. It was about shifting coal up and down to out of mines and into ships and stuff like that. And obviously the, the rail freight sector has historically has changed quite a lot. Um, but if you look in recent history, it's really seeing a, it, it's really quite an area of growth. Uh, definitely an emphasis more on intermodal goods. So, yeah, we that's happened during coronavirus. Yeah. But I guess the other thing is, you're right, we don't see a lot of it because a lot of it moves at night. Mm. And therein lies the rub because if you go into a freight yard, it's it truly is 24-hour operations. You know, they're, they're, they're putting together freight trains and taking them apart and preparing them to go out in the network just as much in the dark, under floodlights, in the rain, all the rest of it as they do during the daytime so that from a kind of traditional physical ergonomic standpoint you know that introduces challenges working at night dark fatigue management those kind of things i was gonna say because i guess the the safety issues there are sort of just simply multiplied just because of it being nighttime and not day because um you know like i say light weather it invariably rains um all that sort of stuff it's that's going to be quite a um a, a veritable minefield for all, yeah, all the different yeah. issues isn't it uh, yeah and, and i mean freight yards are uh they're a rough old in, environment obviously you're walking on ballast mm. walking on, on gravel but uh, <laughs> i've read to be on a few freight yards it's not even what you might call nice ballast right it's, okay it's really kind of you know there's a lot of clutter in the yards again historically some of these yards are really they go back a very long age they've yeah. emerged over time and kind of got refigured used to shift a lot of coal now they're shifting other products so there's a, there's a very organic environment quite literally um so you know slips trips those kind of things can be quite an issue in the freight in the freight yard environment yeah lighting i mean what you see is that actually the people who are prepping trains which is what i've got involved in they walk very long distances over a shift mm. there's a lot of squats a lot of bending down to check couplings a lot of physical tasks things like this so it's physically quite a demanding job so safety in that kind of sense you know you're not tripping banging your head those kind of things are quite an issue so so yeah. sorry just in 
on that respect then, because I know that there was a bit of a reputation for, you know, people who work in on the rail industry, particularly in rail yards and things like that. It's a, uh, it is a very physical, it's a very, but it's also a very historical role. You know, people, you know, families yeah. work, you know, father, son, mother, daughter type on the rail yard. When you're coming in and try, you know, hopefully trying to improve what's going on or at least pro- mm-hmm. pro- offer advice, how is that received? Because obviously some some people can be quite, I guess, stubborn to change and things like that. What what's the I guess the attitude like uh, when it when it comes to newfangled ways of working? Um, that type of thing? <laughs> I've I've got to say with with only one, and this applies across all the operational rail stuff that I've spoken to, driver signalers, yeah, maintenance, all the rest of it. They are normally an extremely welcoming bunch of people. Cool. They're okay. really very happy to tell you about their their work. They are even in quite tough conditions, enthusiastic about their work. And again, I think this is one of the things that's interesting about the rail sector. Yes, it does have this kind of history. It does have this kind of enthusiasm about it. If you go into even the most lowly mess room in a porter cabin somewhere on the side of a freight site. They always have pictures of locos up and stuff like that. There's always a lot of rail chat. So generally people are into what they do what into what they do. They're normally really forthcoming about telling you about it. And right. yes, they 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 acknowledge that there's there's quite often challenges around it. But what becomes interesting to me is the as again, this is more the, the human fa- cognitive human factors, cognitive psychology, is how they go about this kind of decision making, how they go about the the cognitive tasks that they engage in, because so much of it is up here, mm-hmm. and it, you know it's going through that process of really trying to understand what they what they're doing. At first, it's just this wave of acronyms <laughs> and history and stuff like that, but after a while, you start to pick through. Yeah, okay, so this means this, and this means that. And, and you know they're in the, the, quite often they're in their their silo. They've got a job to do. They think about getting that job done. And, and sometimes my role is just to take a bit of a step back and start to connect it with with other functions and see how, again, from a human factor standpoint, how maybe pressures people are under in one particular environment may have been triggered by things upstream or have implications downstream as well. So that's really cool. But I guess with that, so much um, knowledge being in their heads and almost passed down and, and things like that, mm-hmm. human, or at least being able to measure or understand human performance must be must be quite challenging. Do you, How do you engage with that? Um, so the measuring of human performance, I th- well, I think that that is a good question. I think it's not like I can, I can give you a straight answer yeah, yeah. Ah, where we do this and we do that. I think that, to me... And that's particularly, I think, as a role as an academic, my role is often about coming up with the methodologies, thinking right. about the methodologies. So, you know, my first project in rail was looking at situation awareness for rail signalers and, and what kind of methodologies that we could apply, taking some of the pre-existing methodologies. Do they really stack up for understanding situation awareness in rail signalers, what they are nominally keeping track of in their head and i say that with a huge amount of caveats and scare <laughs> quotes because i don't think that's necessarily what they're doing right and i think at the risk of giving you a, a politician's non-answer i think that's the <laughs> challenge quite often by by trying to measure human performance we find it only gets us so far so okay 
what's the missing piece and what does that come down to and what's that that aspect that we can't really understand or access so readily because okay. quite often that's the bit that in other language might be the almost like the work has done if you like that's the the bit that really allows operators say in a freight yard or signalers to really perform their work it's all that stuff that isn't immediately observable in in kind of human performance i think not that i'm directly involved with it but i think people are are increasingly looking at um physiological measures and the phd that was going on in, in nottingham abby fowler looking at physiological measures with signalers to understand their performance work with drivers some really interesting work going on at the moment to look at driver behavior as it comes out the signaling and control system to understand sort of performance factors and indeed this kind of leads to a, a project we're involved with at the moment which is looking at data that's coming out of the rail system to understand you know sort of my how, how maybe minor performance issues at one point ripple back through the network okay. and so we're looking at how we can build if you like driver simulation models that actually a lot of a lot of simulation if they've got a, a train you know train network simulation i'll have a train i'll have a, like an idealized view of how the train should perform right yeah or it might have a bit of noise in there or they might have a kind of a slightly more realistic acceleration and braking curve but quite often it doesn't have the sort of the the causal analysis or the causal understanding of why people driving like that. Are they driving like that because of driving policy? Are they driving like that because of, well, that's the signals in front of them, that their expectations, those kind of things. So what we're trying to do is understand what can we put in the simulation model that might make the simulation drive a little bit more like how drivers drive. Okay. Because also... It's not. A, I'm always very keen to stress this. I'm sure, sure you get this, Barry. It's not, it's not that drivers are some kind of noise or impediment in the system. They're also the the people that give the system the resilience and the signalers as well mm. by their their choices, their decision making, their expertise. Says, well, I know what. I've got a pretty good expectation of what's going to happen ahead, so I'm going to do these things to buy myself some extra time to keep the system safe all these kind of things. So how can we model that as well? You know, the kind of ways that the operational staff in the railways maintain performance and resilience as well. So being able, so basically you're, you're talking about modelling the, the human attributes within the system and then incorporating that into the overall um, simulation to give that yeah. more... Re- I guess it's not yeah. dissimilar, I guess, to... I guess there was that film, wasn't there, about the, um, the pilot who landed on the Hudson... Um, you know, oh, yeah. and and that was again interesting. Where the, they had the the, the simulation, um, you could have made that decision. You could have made it, and they were like, "Well, actually, no. If you put the human decision making piece into that, you know, real human decision making, not artificial stuff, um, actually, it takes a lot longer and and things like that. And it it's something, I guess, with technology nowadays, we don't necessarily appreciate in the same way. Um, so, I guess this work is really vitally important. Well, okay, and it's understand. It's why a lot of this comes into the realm as well of it being a human automation. You know, it's it's a major theme, I think, across all the domains that we mm. deal with in human facts. Is kind of human automation interaction. Ideally, we'd move towards a notion of teaming, but how are the humans and automation working together? 
because again it's oh you can automate the pants off everything but we're still dealing with the Bainbridge's ironies of automation you know I've, I've now automated all the things that I couldn't trust the human to do and okay the automation doesn't work so human can you just step back in again and take yeah. over and humans like well, what am I doing um, <clears throat> what we really need to get to a position is we understand what the strengths of the automation are not just function allocation but how can those two things work together so a kind of a, a joint cognitive systems view and what's interesting is that the rails sector gb but worldwide is increase, mm-hmm. increasingly adopting automation it's it's higher and higher levels of decision making so automation previously would set the signals for the trains but yeah. now it's starting to make more decisions about well, maybe we should do this instead of this in order to maintain the timetable. And okay, how do you communicate that to a an operator so that they remain informed, a part of that decision-making process, particularly when it comes to controlling the rail network, because that might be what they need to start making decisions about whether a track worker could go up track safely or whether they can open up a level crossing, those mm-hmm. kind of things. And automation is very important in the maintenance world as well. So increasingly, we've we've got remote condition monitoring solutions that are predicting the state of an asset in the future. So it's not not just <clears throat> this asset's faulty, but it's <clears throat> excuse me, this asset might be faulty in the future. And they, you know, so you start to move into the realms of uh, probabilities and sometimes probabilities of probabilities. So how do you communicate that? to an operator and how do they integrate that into their work as well because i always say it's not just about user-centered design it's about user-centered deployment so how do you deploy a new technology so there's maybe two systems running in parallel so people can become accustomed to the new technology before you switch the old one off how do you change things like shift patterns because if you're now saying something's an asset is maintained predictively mm-hmm. it means you're not actually going out on track every two weeks you're going out when the prediction is telling you to go out on track so how does that affect things like even things like shift working and rostering things like that you need to you need to adapt those so that your your human operators your staff can still work comfortably with the, the outputs yeah. of your remote condition monitoring solution I was going to say that user-centered deployment is certainly a new term um, for me. I get This actually highlights the entire reason I do this podcast because it's a great way for me to learn new stuff. Um, but the but you're right because I guess for many people, um, particularly if you're not, you know, you might be a rail user, but you don't, you know, we, we do take a lot of it for, for granted and get grumpy when the train doesn't turn up the right point. But if you're having to deal with a lot more automation, a lot more decision-making and that type of thing, we don't think about the other bits. So we think about, well, this train's coming in, this train's leaving the station, da 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 But actually, you might need a human on track to do a bit of repair or something like that, which is which is not scheduled. It's not that. It's 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 You need to make sure that that, that bit of track is safe. Um, and therefore, you've got to bring everybody into the loop about exactly what is going on, why it's going on. And people might not have looked at that for ages because it's been automated for so long. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah, and it's it's... You know, we talk a bit about systems views and human factors, but I think mm. that's the, the system views in, in railways is fascinating because everything is so deeply interconnected. When there's a disruption, mm. so many things are, are interconnected and so many things are, processes are put into 
to play because you've got everything in, in terms of trying to fix the asset. You say if, the, if it's, it's a fault, mm. trying to fix the asset. What do you do with all the trains you've got which are sitting around? Do you try and redistribute them or do you, you've got an alternative train plan? That's where something like these, these advanced forms of automation may work. But how, what's the visibility that they have of the kind of maintenance activities that are going on? And then what you're telling all your passengers or indeed your customers generally because you've mm. also got a bunch of freight customers who are like, well, where's my train? What do you tell all your customers? How do you communicate with them? What's the best way of communicating with them, keeping them informed, giving them alternatives? Those kind of questions. Well, that sort of segues us nicely into the next bit I wanted to talk around, which was around passenger experience. Because as you just quite rightly said, the it's all very well making sure that the train system runs right or if it isn't running right the the we can find ways of making it run right but what have you been doing around um about basically the passenger experience and how all this fundamentally gets um gets basically communicated to them or or what how it affects them well i i I guess there's a there's two sides to it there's directly what the passenger sees so in terms of passenger information, giving them information, disruption information in a disrupted situation, but indeed just in sort of routine situations when everything, when everything is going well, giving people the right level of information so that they can manage their journey. And then there's the operational side. So what do you do behind the scenes mm. to make sure that you can get the rail, maintain the rails? Again, this notion of, and I mean it in a, in a sort of, David Wood sense resilience. How do you keep the system running? What's the human role in making sure that things that start to go wrong, you can pull them in again without anybody really noticing it. When things go really wrong, how do you repair them? Yeah. And how do you learn from that? How do you adapt? So there's the operational side. I mean, I think from a passenger side, there's almost like a, a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. Which is, you know, at the bottom. Do I get there? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes that, that can be a risk. But once you get above that, it's okay. Am I getting there on time? Am I getting there in comfort? And you've got this layer. And somewhere at the top of that, you've got the equivalent of I've got a really comfortable, seamless journey, which probably involves, again, not just the rail journey itself, but the interconnectivity with those elements at the beginning and the end. Mm. And also you're experiencing a, a, a station. So I think one thing that's interesting, we've done some work with Twitter to understand how Twitter fits in with all the different other information streams that a passenger might look at when they're managing their experience, particularly during a disrupted state. And then also other projects to understand, you know, information on your phone, smartphone information that will give you, again, a whole passenger experience, not just managing the, the train bit, but how to get the station, how to get out the other end. And that becomes quite complex because, of course, going back to my HCI routes, the user interface, you've got to get the usability of that right. Yeah, yeah. But actually the user interface is really an expression of the whole underpinning transport system. So then you get into these questions of, does your user interface really communicate what's happening with the those aspects of the transport system that you need to understand. And that differs whether you're a commuter or an expert as opposed to going on an, an infrequent journey, a tourist or somebody who's less um, confident. Yeah. 
No, it's, it is. <laughs> yeah, the the bit you said about Twitter makes me laugh because it is one of the things I I am very guilty of. of if, if we held up or any in in any way, because um, I'm not a frequent. I, I yeah, I'm not a frequent rail user, though I use it fairly often. Um, but as soon as you held up, I'm straight on there to whoever the rail um, the the um, the the company is. Sort of saying held up now and did it. but and you always get that. It, Will make absolutely no difference. I'm fairly sure, but it, you always you always get that slightly better feeling if if the company then has messaged you back to say, "Oh, we're really sorry," um, sure. and they don't they probably don't give you any more information. But it's actually it does probably enhance that that experience of like, "Oh, at least some at least somebody's listening," um, for sure, which is interesting. And also, you've got to think if you if 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 they answer a tweet. That's that's a fairly cheap thing. I mean, they, they've got mm. to pay somebody who's you know in the hot seat, and I've, I've seen those people work, and man, they've got to type fast. Yeah, I can imagine. They're yeah. busy people. Yeah, but it's a fairly thing. If you then ring up a call center and say blah, 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 that, that becomes a bit more expensive. Yeah, you know, just the the business, you know, management, the business processes. If you write a letter, blah, 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 that becomes even more expensive. So actually managing customer experience through twitter is a very cost effective way mm. to to give you the information you need to give you sometimes you know it's like it's just apology sometimes yeah. um sorry we're doing what we can interesting things like you see people like it during flooding the train operating companies or network rail will will say here, here it is here's the flood you know here's here's the bit of track we're talking get about. ahead of it yeah deep underwater some of the regions, they give really quite detailed information about what's what's happening during faults, and they do it in a very informal, very um, accessible manner. Yes, but they give you quite a lot of information. This is a point fail, and this is what's happening. Do 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 do, and this this is what we'll do afterwards. I think Twitter is fascinating because it's really taken the well. It has t- I think we're beyond taken, but it took the rail sector by surprise to a, to quite an extent. Because all of a sudden you've got this information, you've got passengers who are <laughs> demanding information faster yeah. than the control routes that, that really the rail system, it's used to announcements. Yes. Know, yeah. bah, 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 bah. And all of a sudden people were like, okay, I need information now. Why are you not giving me this information? So the Twitter team started off in marketing departments, but they very quickly ended up migrating into the control room. So if you go into a control room now, there's quite often a, somebody who's in involved in information processing information controller and they'll you know they'll be fronting up the twitter accounts and giving real-time information about what's happening and they say because they generally do feel sort of semi-formal communication language that type of thing is that are they basically entrusted to basically just fire information out as they see fit or is it do they do they have a right I'm, i'm about to send this tweet can you just okay it is it is it um, they're mostly entrusted, mm. but I think they know the limits. When a, if, <laughs> if, if, if it's a, if it's a, cele- a celebrity complaining, oh right, such yes, as okay. yourself, Barry. Oh, if only. <laughs> then I think they know. You know, you imagine sometimes it's an MP. Yeah, yeah. I I think they know when they need to um, check. You know, check it, escalate <laughs> it. So that you know, and again, it's one of these because of the hugely interconnected 
back end. John Wilson, you saw say, you know, the railway's complex socio-technical system. It's people Mm. and technology working together. It's multiple functions all interconnected. It's an open system. Things dribble out into space. You know, your passengers leave the station and dribble out into space. But usually things from outside of the railway system, like weather and crowds coming from football matches, they all affect your system. So mm. it's just, it, you know it's so complex in that kind of way. So a number of things are, again those those Twitter operators are really really quite knowledgeable in terms of knowing. You know somebody said well, why is my it's only four cars on this train? Why is it only two cars today? Well, because <laughs> of this reason and that reason, and this will happen tomorrow and whatever. They've really got to know quite a lot of operational stuff. I, say, I think that's probably the most common complaint whenever we go and watch the rugby in Cardiff and trying to get the um, try and get the train back. There's, there's invariably never enough carriages, and you can always see Twitter explode. Why is there not enough carriages? Yeah, but then, well, again, so your Maslow's hierarchy of yeah. needs it's it's pretty low down the bottom. That am I going to get any kind of seat or any sort of degree of? Because again, we 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 have an expectation now. A lot of us that you know, well, work on the train. Well, I'll just do that that work on the train, but. Yeah, it's really hard to work on the train when you're yes. standing in the doorway of the toilet. Yes, laptops is, don't work quite so well then. Yeah. yeah. So what does all this mean then for, because you, you quite rightly opened our eyes into it's not just about passengers, it's about freight, it's about there's, you've got so many different people working where we don't see them, where the general public don't see them, they're, they're basically making magic happen. Um, what does all this mean for the experience of the train service itself? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, again, you know, since I've been involved, there's a lot of talk about the railways becoming much more passenger-focused. Indeed, in the freight sector, you're customer-focused. But I think what's interesting is how you actually operationalise that. So, again, passenger-focused doesn't necessarily mean passenger-centred. Uh, oh, right. sounds okay, like yeah. a slightly subtle difference, but it's one yeah, thing, yeah. Oh, we're going to do all this stuff and we're going to make sure the passenger, as opposed to, right, what does the passenger need? How are we going to meet those needs? And you can really see that there is a change happening. Again, over the last 10 years, I think certain train operators have really done more to move into that very passenger-centred view of the world. Um, so I think there are improvements in that. But I, again, I think it's about the, the holistic end-to-end experience. What is it that a passenger wants from the minute they leave the door to the minute they get to the door on the other end? Or what are all the various factors that will influence that? Because again, I, I mean, this is people like, I don't know if you come across Glenn Lyons, who's you know, major academic in, in Things like transport planning and transport policy and, and a lot of stuff about transport information. You know, we're not rational beings when we go out <laughs> into the rail network or indeed any transport network. You know, if we're, if we're unfamiliar, there's a lot of anxiety about that. But whether we admit it or not, I think we're always leaving the cave. And if we are familiar with it, there's a huge amount of habit and expectation built in with that. So the idea that we'd be doing, you're doing some rational information processing and weighing off our options, I, I think that rarely happens. So I think it therefore becomes interesting how we process and present information in such a way that it reflects how people really do decision-making and really interact on with their journey experience, if you like. And that's holistic. So I, I'm always impressed that it started to, I first saw it on the London Underground, when the announcement came over the Tannoy and it was synchronised 
with the digital displays down the end of the carriage. Okay, yeah, okay. So it wasn't just, here's some information, here's some other information. Those two were synchronised with each other. I noticed the train I got the other day, LNER, that had that covered. I get on the train now, it's got a little red, amber, red, amber, green telling me whether that seat is reserved, available, or it's okay now, but you might have to get up later on. Those kind of little things are just, you know, they really improve my journey experience, I think. You know, yes. remove my anxiety, particularly for those less frequent trips. And mo- very importantly, we have to think about in a post-COVID world, we're getting almost up to the previous passenger numbers, but there's a lot more infrequent, longer journeys being taken now right. in our post-COVID world, more leisure travel, more people who are work. you know, I'm going to do two days in the office down in London, I'm going to go back up to my country pile or go, you know out <laughs> yes. into the suburbs or whatever so people are taking more infrequent journeys less familiar journeys it's a different way of thinking about your journey experience yeah yeah because i guess there's nothing more anger stoking i guess than before you even and before you even get on the railway if you can't get parked or you can't actually get to the station in the first place and then when you get home if you can't easily get out of the station and i can sort of think of three four different examples of, of that so yeah. that that whole yeah. you're right that whole end-to-end experience is going is fundamentally very important I, you raise a really good point as well because it's typically when i go on a journey i i call me old-fashioned but i like to come back as well barry um, well that, that's a novelty isn't it but yeah and, it, <laughs> and that, you know so you, you see a lot of things like apps to provide you know interconnectivity with your you know to the station mm. But I'm working on a shared travel project at the moment. We're going to provide shared travel to the station, but that also then has to get you back from the station when you come home at the end of the day. So you've got to think about how people see journeys. You know, there's a bunch of interconnected steps, all of which require decision-making, all of which require decision-making, which is typically not that rational with a capital R, uh, and there's a little bit more habit-based, emotionally-based, these kind of things. And the, the key thing is that's, that's quite a high set of barriers you've got to jump over. And when mm. people start to see frustration, what do they do? They they get in their car. Or you end up with with certain parts, certain either communities or social sociodemographic groups who just don't have the opportunity to travel yeah. so much. Yeah, and that, that's true. And I guess going into one of my sort of um, um, pet projects at the moment is around we want to get more and more people onto public transport to reduce the um, the uh, the dependence on cars and things like that in order to help with yeah. you know climate change and, and that type of thing. So if we get all this sort of stuff right, I mean, this this whole interconnectivity between different types of public transport, I think is is something quite close to my heart because of um, yeah. because we're, we're, I just think it's fundamentally important. So I could go on about this for for quite a long time, I think, but. For, from your perspective, where next? What 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 are the next challenges, or what are the challenges you're trying to hit now for that human factors you think can uh, that human factors can help with? So I think understanding greater levels of automation, the digital railway. So again, automation makes it suggest it's kind of like oh, it's going to be more of a computer doing the thinking. Yeah, but actually, it's not. It's more about a digital railway. It's more about the exchange of data between multiple functions where previously that wasn't possible. So the good news is that gives people much kind of greater shared 
visibility from an operational side. And indeed, there's a cut you can make of that and give that shared visibility over to the passengers even as well. But then understanding what information is appropriate to share is quite challenging. So there's a difference in what information you and I might need to make a joint decision as opposed to the information I need to make a decision and you need to just act upon. So how do we share that information? How do we visualise it in such a way that it can be used between quite disparate functions and disparate groups, particularly when they're not co-located necessarily? Mm. So I'm really interested in the kind of systems models. I've always dabbled a little bit with things like cognitive work analysis to understand how we can map out the functions of, say, parts of the railway or indeed we've done some work again with Brendan and colleagues at Nottingham to map out a map of the universe, if you like, the whole railway system and understand what the role of people are in that railway system. So if you change one role, what might be the interconnected effects? But I'm also interested in approaches, say, like East. Yeah. Um, uh, so trying to understand how we can model shared awareness, shared situation awareness, shared tasks and information in things like disruption management. So the right people are getting the right information so that they can take the right actions. You know, we don't want situations which have happened in the past, I think, where, you know, a good disruption disruption management strategy is thought out in the event of a disruption. But if that's not communicated to people on the, on the platforms, either passengers or indeed, the staff on the platforms, it doesn't kind of stack up. So I think that that's a real area of interest for me. The other area I would say is this. I've had the opportunity to come to Newcastle to work with some really great people working in simulation Mm. uh, and understanding more about how we can stick a human element in that simulation because it has a twin benefit of improving the simulation, but also my ability to express to them the human performance characteristics makes me have to think really hard about can I formalise sort of things like workload models. We stick in a basic workload model. How can we formalise that workload model in such a way that it can be used effectively within a simulation? And there's a lot of challenge back to me to say, well, that, that doesn't really work. What, what do you mean by that? How do we operationalise this in a simulation model? I've got to be re- really kind of clear on my thinking. Yeah, yeah. So you're generally going to keep yourself quite busy then by the sounds of it. There's um, there, there's lots to keep you amused. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's good to... It keeps me off the streets. Yeah. So that, 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 I mean, that sounds... I mean, the, the crossover from... Certainly from a very selfish, selfish perspective in terms of, you know, situational awareness, shared situational awareness, um, data overload, de- you know, lots, all that sort of stuff. It sounds like there's lots of really interesting um, topics that I, I really need to keep an eye on because it's it sounds really interesting. Um, so we're getting to the, this this final bit because I, I recognise I've kept you for quite a long time. But the um, so these are the final three questions that um, I ask for. I ask everybody, and they're currently called the final three. Um, so. If you had a, a book or a paper, um, do you have one that you go back to and use repeatedly or read repeatedly? And it could be technical or it could be a fiction book if that'd be the case, or do you just not have time? Or No, 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 I do, I do. Um, if, I was, if I was to choose a technical book, I do keep getting out of our library, and I just keep getting out of the Nottingham Library as well, the... Uh, Cognitive Systems Engineering book, 
by Holnagel and Woods. I keep mm-hmm. going back to that. <clears throat> I think for a number of reasons. I think the way that it talks about the relationship between humans and technology yeah. in the broader sense rather than just automation. But the way it then makes you think about the control of a system and it starts to link into some stuff, which I, I've, I've only dabbled in, but about cybernetics and how we describe the control of systems. Because ultimately the railways is about, you know, signalers controlling the network, a driver is controlling trains. But then the whole thing is really about controlling the whole rail environment. And there's some key principles in there, mm. but also the way it's written. It's, I find it a bit of a, oh, I don't know which which metaphor to go for here, <laughs> whether it's a, a Rorschach ink block, ink blot, right. or a Rosetta Stone, but I, I, I keep going back to it. I don't always understand it, but it makes me think more and more about, okay, what are the people that I'm observing? What are they trying to do? Yeah. At which point are they trying to, say, apply strategies to allow them to understand a very complex work environment? At which point are they engaged in trade-offs to control a very complex work environment? So I keep going back to that book. I find it um, challenging and, and fascinating. Cool. So if you could go back a number of years to, to younger Dave and uh, give yourself mm-hmm. some, some advice, what would it be? Um, I, I, I mean, I, 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 there's a couple of things, I suppose, from a kind of a, you know, my own personal development, I think being a, to have been bolder earlier on in getting involved in human factors, I spent quite a lot of time in kind of human computer interaction. Mm-hmm. But yeah. really, what interested me was understanding how people. I guess do their jobs. People express their expertise. Yeah. So I think my I would have kicked myself up the bum to get involved in that that earlier. Um, I think also to just keep on top of current theories. I'm still telling myself that now, but keep on top of theoretical developments. Yeah. Um, because I think it's very easy to get to end up reading about your domain. I don't, we haven't talked about the conference particularly, but you know, I think one thing that that works well, it works brilliantly about the the, the EHF conferences, multiple domains there, multiple disciplines. Mm. We all meet to talk about human factors, but as healthcare and transport, and you know, we all get together. And I think reading about those other disciplines and hearing about them at a more theoretical level, I think, is really important. So I think, yeah, not to get bogged down in my particular domain or get too focused, but keep a broad scope. I've got to admit, and I think I've said this on a couple of previous episodes and to pretty much most of the people I've been talking to recently, the I liked at the conference where um, Alex Dedman sort of challenged us all to go and to go into an, one of the sectors that makes you feel uncomfortable, that you've never really done before. And um, so I spent a fair bit of time in the health domain and the, the well-being one. Um, and I just found that absolutely fascinating. And it was it was really good seeing different disciplines, different things, and, um, and being able to think, right, how would I apply them? And also, how could I make a difference to these? I guess in your yeah. role as the, in looking after the, the programme, being co-chair of the um, programme, you have to read every paper, or read most of them anyway, and therefore, you know, that's almost a really, you, you get to do that almost deliberately that way. Yeah, so. yeah. That is, and, and, and you're, 
you raise a good point with healthcare. It's some of the strongest papers that we have in the conference. Mm. Particularly going back to what I've been talking about a little bit, things like resilience and and understanding resilience and understanding adaptation. There's been some really fantastic work, and now there's an increasing body of work looking at uh, automation and Mm. autonomy in healthcare. So, again, similar challenges but from a different domain. What, where are we doing the same things? Which point are they different? And again, one thing I think, you know, I could say this about rail, but equally dealt with other domain. Again, it's just a surface level. You might say, oh, railway, you know, controlling trains must be a bit like air traffic control. That's why I thought at first, but actually it's different. It's more like a process control task. Right. And at which yeah. point is, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, but which point is organising a, station more like organizing a ward or something like that you know where, where these parallels are quite often hidden it's only when you start to look at these other domains yes you start to draw those parallels in that kind of way i guess yeah because i guess it's one of the ways i always use um whenever whenever i go to a new domain and try and do the sort of exploration piece i try and almost do, not i don't try and invoke conflict but the um i try and get people to sort of show where the differences are by saying, oh, well, this must be just like this then. But this, but you know, yeah. I, I hadn't really seen that the, it was such a such a strong difference that way. Um, yeah, that I've completely got, got, gone, off, gone off track again. So let's drag us back on track. <laughs> um, we can both pull that, that, that gag now. Um, so the final question to you then really is, it's a lazy one for me because um, I want your advice on who would you think um, I should interview? Um, who would make a good, good guest on the podcast? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so, I, well, first of all, you're going to interview. I think you're going to interview Nora. Yes, she's so going to from be a on rail perspective. Massively knowledgeable. I'm going to give you a few suggestions here, if you don't mind. Go for it. Yes. I, I don't know. If you, I don't know. If, you know, I've, I've worked for a, a long time now with Sarah Sharples, and both from an academic perspective, but also now a role. Mm-hmm. Chief Scientific Advisor at the DFT. She's got a completely different perspective. While while her role is broader than human factors considerably, she she now has insight. I think and, and something to share with us about how we human factors can get involved in things like policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, Mark Young is a, is really interesting chap having worked in a number of aspects he does you know he has a key role in rail accident investigation branch but is also still thinks a lot about the fundamentals of human factors the fundamentals of psychology i think i'm right in saying he's he's got a book coming out and underload soon so um yeah Brilliant. There will, there will be some suggestions. We will. Um, I would. I will chase them up and basically say that it's your fault. Uh, no, that's brilliant, David. Thank you very much for taking the time to share your insights. Uh, insights with oh, us. And, my pleasure. Um, for anybody who wants to get in touch with with Dave, then all of his details are on our, on the website. Link to this episode. Please go and check them out. And thank you to everyone who's been listening and sharing in this experience. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and if you're feeling especially generous, do leave us a review or even just a comment on our socials so then other people know that they can come and listen too. But for now, see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions and comments. 
You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.